But it is a, uh, it's a delight to be with you, to open the Word of God with you, and uh, it's wonderful to uh, trust the Lord to benefit uh, His people. What do you do? What do you preach in such scenarios? Uh, you preach what's on your heart. You preach what the Lord has set on your heart. And uh, coming out of the Christmas season and looking ahead to a new year, my mind has been drawn to the topic of forgiveness. And when we think about seasons of culmination and corresponding new beginnings, it's natural to be drawn to thoughts of wiping the slate clean, uh, starting fresh, right? If we've allowed some sort of conflict to persist between us, we don't want an old year to pass or a new year to come without dealing with that, without, without putting that conflict to rest, without seeking and granting forgiveness, And besides that, in a real sense, the purpose of Christmas is forgiveness itself. The purpose of the incarnation of God the Son was so that sinners could be forgiven, so that the punishment for sin, which was due only to man, and yet which could only be borne by God, would be borne by the God-man. No one ought to pay for sin except man. And no one can pay for sin except God, and so in order to accomplish the just forgiveness of ruined sinners, God became man. And God's forgiveness of our sins through the perfect redemption of Christ also has implications for our forgiveness of those who have sinned against us. Our being forgiven and our being forgiving are inextricably linked. And perhaps no passage illustrates that better or more vividly than Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. And that'll be our text for this morning. That text comes upon the heels of the Lord's teaching on church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, where He outlines the four steps that believers are to follow in confronting sin in one another. Brother sins... That you establish everything by the mouth of two or three witnesses. If he still doesn't listen, you tell it to the whole church so that the entire redeemed community can pursue this brother and aim to convince him of his sin. There is to be private rebuke, plural rebuke, and then public rebuke. And then if he doesn't listen even to the whole church, Jesus says you put him out of the church because by refusing to repent of sin, he's behaving like an unbeliever. Well, on the heels of that text, Peter pipes up and asks Jesus, verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And we understand the question. Jesus has just said that there are going to be occasions, even among the people of God, where your brother or sister in the Lord sins against you. Church discipline tells you what to do when there isn't repentance. But Peter's thinking, well, what about when there is repentance, or at least confession? But when, you know, when a brother sins against me repeatedly, if it's a couple of times here and there, I know that I should be quick to forgive him, but what if it's over and over again? Does forgiveness have a limit? And rather than wait for a response... Peter immediately offers a suggestion, up to seven times. 
And Peter thinks he's being very generous here. He, the custom of the rabbis was to forgive an offense that was committed three times, but to refuse forgiveness for the fourth transgression. They misinterpreted statements from the book of Amos, where God says, for example, in Amos 2.6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And so the rabbis argued that that meant that God forgives three transgressions, but not four. And so that should be our practice as well. Well, Peter doubles the rabbi's recommendation, and then he adds one. And so he's feeling very magnanimous. Lord, I am prepared to bear the offense. Not once, not twice, not three times. I will be faithful to forgive my brother up to seven times. And Jesus replies, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And I would have just loved to see the look on Peter's face, right? I'm sorry, what'd you say? <laughs> the disciples would have all looked at each other and said, 70 times seven, how could that be? Now, 70 times seven is 490 But Jesus' point is not that you are to forgive someone who commits the same offense against you 490 times, but boy, when they strike 491, you can unleash vengeance. No, Jesus takes the number seven, which some say is the perfection of a series, and then multiplies it by itself, and then multiplies it again by ten, which some say is the number of perfection in the abstract. And so it's as if Jesus is saying perfection times perfection times perfection. It's something akin to our saying, well, infinity times infinity times infinity. The point is, it's uncountable. There isn't to be a limit to the Christian's forgiveness. Say, Mike, you sure? You sure Jesus didn't really mean 490 and then let him have it? I mean, I can keep records with the best of them. Well, I'm sure you can. We can all tend to be scrupulous record keepers, can't we? 489, 490, 491. Okay, now, brother, I have been forbearing this offense for 490 times, but you've just crossed the threshold and we've got to... No, no. We are to love our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what does 1 Corinthians 13, 5 say? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Other translations say love keeps no record of wrongs. See, love doesn't keep score. You couldn't count 491 because it's number one every time. Love forbears and forgives and believes and endures. One commentator says, Peter's question is misconceived. If one is still counting, however generously, one is not forgiving. And in fact, in Luke 17, 3 and 4, the parallel passage, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent forgive him. And so here is the principle, one that needs to take soil in or take root in the soil of every Christian's heart. 
Where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. Where there is the seeking of forgiveness, there is the granting of forgiveness. When a brother or sister repents, Christians forgive. We are to be extravagant, lavish forgivers. And why is that? It is because we have been extravagantly, lavishly forgiven. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also must you. You see, we are to be a lavishly forgiving people because we are a lavishly forgiven people. We need to be freshly affected by the weight of our own sin, by the sheer magnitude of the debt that we owe to God for the offenses that we have committed against His holiness. And we need to be ravished by the scandalous mercy by the free grace and boundless compassion of the forgiveness that we have received from God through Christ. And we need to compare the mountain of our own sin against God, which has been freely forgiven, to the molehills of offenses that even our fellow Christians commit against us. And we need to bend out the very mercy that we have received to them in forgiveness. And Jesus makes this point by following up His 70 times 7 answer by telling a parable in verses 23 to 35. And it's a parable that illustrates the mercy of God to us in His forgiveness of our sins through the atoning work of Christ, as well as our gospel-driven duty to forgive as we have been forgiven. Those are the two broad movements of the, par- of the parable. We have the forgiven slave in verses 23 to 27 and the unforgiving slave in verses 28 to 35. Now, I'll only be able to get to the first of those two this morning, but I still think it will be a benefit for us. And perhaps providence will arrange for a part two at some point. Well, this first half of the parable is intended by the Lord Jesus to be a vivid and heart-ravishing illustration of God's bottomless grace in forgiving us. And so my goal for the rest of our time together is to assault your soul with views of the unspeakable glory of your salvation, the riches that you possess in Christ, of the treasure that is the forgiveness of sins. And to do that, we'll walk through the first half of this parable in five scenes. The first scene comes in verses 23 and 24, and that is the scene of the slave's incalculable debt. The slave's incalculable debt. Jesus says in verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So we're in the realm of the kingdom of God, speaking about how believers are to conduct themselves with one another. And he says, it's like a king settling accounts with his slaves. 
Now, in the ancient world, a king would have several officials appointed to oversee the various provinces of his kingdom. They were something like governors, and one of their primary responsibilities would be to collect the region's taxes on behalf of the king. And so, at various, at various times, a king would call his governors to account for the tax money they were responsible to deliver. And that's likely the scenario here. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And at this point in the story, Jesus probably would have had to pick the disciples up off the floor. 10,000 talents was an absurd amount of money, even to think about, let alone to owe someone. A talent is a measurement of weight, and it measured either silver or gold. And when we hear of talents elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear of Jesus talking about servants who were entrusted with one talent or five talents or at the most 10 talents. But 10,000 talents is absolutely unfathomable. Historical records estimate that the total annual revenue collected by the Roman government from the regions of Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee all together was 900 talents. 10,000 talents would be more than 11 years' tax revenue from all four of those provinces. A denarius, which, we'll see, which we do see in verse 28, uh, was one day's wage for a common day laborer. Jesus makes reference to that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2. But a talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. So a talent was 6,000 days wages, or roughly 16 and a half years of an average earner's income. 10,000 of those talents would then be 60 million days wages, or 164,383 years pay. That is an unfathomable number. It is an absolutely incalculable debt. In fact, the Greek term murios that gets translated 10,000 in this text was actually the highest number in the Greek language. And because of that, it was often used in a figurative sense to represent an uncountable number. We borrow the term into English in the word myriad. And we see it used that way in Revelation 5.11 where we read of the number of angels of heaven being myriads of myriads. So just like 70 times 7... 10,000 talents isn't intended to be a unit of legitimate uh, measurement. It's meant to be hyperbole that signifies a number that cannot be counted. Saying the slave owed the king 10,000 talents is like saying he owed him a zillion dollars or a bajillion dollars. It's an absolutely incalculable debt. And what that teaches us is that each and every one of us slaves owes God, our King, an incalculable debt. And why is that? It's because of our sin. You see, by virtue of God being our Creator and King, by virtue of our being created in His image, we are accountable to Him. We are obligated to obey the law of His mouth, the commandments which are, of which are only the external expression of His holy character. And every single sin we commit, whether in thought, word, or deed, 
is a transgression of this holy law of God. It is a violation, an affront to the holy character of God. And therefore, every single sin we commit amasses a debt that we owe to Him. We have violated holy justice, and therefore a penalty must be paid, and so a debt is owed. This is why Scripture speaks of our sin as debt in Colossians 2.14. Paul speaks of the broken law of God as the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. And then in Matthew chapter 6, as the Lord teaches the disciples to pray to the Father, He teaches us to petition Him, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Sin amasses a debt that we owe to God. And like the slave in the parable, Our sin debt is incalculable. It's a debt of 10,000 talents. It's a debt of zillions and bajillions of dollars. It is an infinite debt. It's a debt beyond measurement or tracing out. Say, why? How does that work? Well, because God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely worthy of all obedience and devotion. And that means every single sin that any one of us ever commits is a sin against infinite holiness. And a sin against infinite holiness is infinitely wicked. And an infinitely wicked act merits an infinite punishment. We don't meditate often enough on the sinfulness of sin, on its supreme wickedness, its loathsomeness. It's filthiness. Sin doesn't disgust us like it should for the vile thing that it is. The Puritans called sin the plague of plagues, the evils, the evil of evils. And it seemed like almost every Puritan wrote a treatise at some point in his life entitled The Sinfulness of Sin. And the sinfulness of sin is measured chiefly by how diametrically opposed it stands to the God of all goodness and beauty. In his book, Heaven Opened, Joseph Allen wrote this, Sin is the insurrection and rebellion of the heart against God. It turns from Him and turns against Him. It it runs over to the camp of the enemy and there takes up arms against God. Sin is a running from God and a fighting against God. Sin would spoil the Lord of all the jewels of His crown. It opposes the sovereignty of God. A sinful heart would set up itself in God's throne. It would be king in His stead and have the command of all. Sinners would be their own gods. And Ralph Venning wrote this, Sin goes about to ungod God and is by some of the ancients called deicidium, God-murder, or God-killing, deicide. Sin would kill God if it could, and would be God in His place. And in one of the more striking passages you'll ever come across, John Bunyan wrote that sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of His mercy, the jeer of His patience, the slight of His power, and the contempt of His love. 
And so is it any wonder that sin against a God so good, so glorious, and infinitely holy as our God, is it any wonder that even a single sin merits an infinite punishment, obligates us to an incalculable debt? And yet we haven't committed just one sin against infinite holiness, have we? We haven't committed just one sin per day against infinite holiness. We have committed thousands upon tens of thousands of sins. David speaks for all of us in Psalm 40, verse 12, when he says, Evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Friends, our King has fixed a day in which He is going to call all of us into His presence and settle accounts with us. And every last one of us, by virtue of who we are by nature and how we've lived since being born, will, because of our sins, owe Him an incalculable debt. But having said that, that brings us, secondly, to the, to the slave's inability to pay. The slave's inability to pay, verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay. And we'll stop there for a moment, though it barely needs any comment. It follows from the nature of an incalculable debt that no one has the ability to pay it. None of us can pay for our sins. Our condition is utterly hopeless of ourselves. I mean, even if we were to take 10,000 talents literally, imagine you were summoned to court with uh, no explanation that anything was wrong, and you say, Your Honor, what seems to be the problem? And, you know, he hands you an envelope or sends the envelope with the bailiff, and, and, and you open it, and it says you've been delinquent in your payment of taxes. And you say, I don't know how that could have happened. And the bailiff brings you the envelope, and you discover that the number is $11.5 billion, which is what 10,000 talents is in adjusted for our current currency. You owe the federal government $11.5 billion. It's hard to fathom because it's just a number that's so outlandish. It's a number that's so cartoonish. But imagine if it was real. Imagine if you were on the hook for $11.5 billion. How would you feel? like your stomach dropped out of you, like absolutely helpless, entirely at a loss, which is how you should feel. That's why in Romans 5, 6, Paul calls every sinner in our natural condition helpless, ostenace, without strength. You say, well, now look now, I, I know that I'm not perfect, but on the whole, I think that I'm a pretty good person. I'm certainly not as sinful as some people I know. But James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You break one of the commandments of God's law, he says you're guilty of breaking them all. You say, okay, well, if I'm guilty, let me at least try to pay for my crimes. But no, friend, your debt is un. Payable. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. 
And your soul's redemption doesn't cost any less than your brother's redemption. You can't pay. It's just impossible. You say, no, 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 I'll cleanse myself of my stains. In Jeremiah 2.22, God says, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. But I can change. I can do better. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No, no, no. I'll work really hard. You don't understand. I'm a hard worker. I can do this. Romans 3, 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, we must all make the confession that Augustus Toplady wrote in that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. And so what's the consequence? For that we come in the third place. Not only did the slaves' incalculable debt and the slaves' inability to pay, but also, number three, the slaves deserved condemnation. The slaves deserved condemnation. Verse 25 again. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. This was something of a common practice in the ancient world where someone who had found himself unable to pay a debt would sell himself into servitude under the one to whom he owed the money, basically to work off by manual labor the debt that he owed. The law of God in Leviticus 25, without condoning it, takes for granted that such a practice will occur from time to time, and it makes provision for the family of such a one who had become so poor to sell himself to redeem him by paying his debt as a ransom price. Well, such was the case for this slave and his whole family, since the the wife and the children of a man were considered to belong to him as the head of his household. They themselves were assets that could be taken from him, and all of them, with their personal belongings, were to be sold into slavery. And the money that such a sale would garner would be paid back to the king toward the 10,000-talent debt. And, of course, there is no way that a lifetime of servitude could repay even a fraction of what this man owed his king. But the point was he was to be punished for his mismanagement of the stewardship entrusted to him by his Lord. This is the debtor's prison. And in the same way, the sinner's deserved condemnation for our sins is the debtor's prison of hell itself. This is what our sin deserves. Jesus speaks of hell as something of a debtor's prison in several places, but I want to go to just one of them in Luke chapter 12, verses 57 to 59. Luke chapter 12, 57 to 59. There, Jesus rebukes the crowds, and He warns them of the certainty of their deserved condemnation. He says, and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you were going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, 
so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What's he saying? He's saying that someone who is going to court to settle a matter and who knows that he's guilty, he'd be a fool not to settle out of court with his accuser because then he's going to have to face the judge. And then the judge is going to expose him as guilty, hand him over to the court officer, and the court officer is going to throw him into prison until his debt is repaid. And friends, what Jesus is saying is our court date is coming. You might say our entire life is lived on the way to our appointment at the judgment seat of God. And each and every last one of us is guilty. We have all sinned. We have all broken God's law. We've all lied. We've all stolen something. We've all blasphemed God's name. We've all looked with lust. We've all been unjustly angry and therefore have committed what Jesus says is murder in our hearts. My unbelieving friend, you sit here this morning on the way to judgment day, on the way to face your judge, and you know that you're guilty. Settle out of court. Settle your case with God before you ever get to judgment by trusting in the blood and righteousness of the one who has volunteered to pay your debt. Because when you stand before Him as your judge, clothed in the filthy rags of your own sins, devoid of the pure robe of the righteousness that God requires of all those that would stand in His presence, He's going to cast you into the debtor's prison of hell until you can pay what you owe. And the reality is, friends, that like the man in the parable, you'll never be able to pay what you owe. Because as we've said, every sin you commit is perpetrated against an infinitely holy God. And so every sin is an infinite crime. It makes you infinitely guilty and incurs, therefore, an infinite debt and merits an infinite punishment. Scripture speaks about that as eternity in hell, in a place where Jesus Himself describes it as a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That horrible place is the just punishment that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. It's our deserved condemnation. The great commentator John Gill writes this, But think, O sinner, what will you be able to say and do when God comes to reckon with you and you have nothing to pay, nor anyone to pay for you or be your surety? A prison must be thy portion forever. And that being the case, I hope that every last one of you within the sound of my voice has the good sense to do what this slave did next, though not, as we'll see, in the precise way that he does it. Our fourth scene is the slave's plea for mercy. The slave's plea for mercy. We see it in verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground 
and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He does the only sensible thing a man in his position can do. When you're a slave under the bondage of an incalculable debt that you are unable to pay, staring down the sentence of your deserved condemnation, the only reasonable thing to do is to bow down on your face and beg for mercy. But there's something curious about the way this man asks for mercy. He asks for mercy in the form of patience. Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. This man owes $11.5 billion, 165,000 years' wages. Sure, buddy, how much time would you like? I'll pay you everything. This man's delusional to think that simply more time would suffice for him to pay such an incalculable, unpayable debt. And yet, isn't this perfectly illustrative of the sinner's natural legalistic disposition? When we're confronted with the absolute holiness of God and the sheer magnitude of our sin and the unbearable weight of our deserved judgment, what do we say? Oh, I've got to do better. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to turn over a new leaf. I know. I'll make some New Year's resolutions. I'll reform myself. You know, I've got to pay God back. If I could just get a handle on my vices, I know that God will understand. I'll just, I'll just put away the drugs and the alcohol. I'll stop the fornication and the sexual immorality. I'll get a real tight grip on my language and my thought life. I'll even get back into going to church and reading my Bible. Do you know what all that sounds like to God? Have patience with me, Lord, and I'll repay you all of my $11.5 billion debt. And he says, oh, really? What are you going to pay me with? And you say, well, with my righteousness, Lord, with my cessation of sin. And there are two problems with that. One is that even if you could this very moment summon the willpower from within yourself to stop committing sin in thought, word, and deed for the rest of your life, you still wouldn't be able to pay for the 10,000 talents of debt that you've racked up already. But second, what estimation does God make of your righteousness? Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And if you've been around Christianity for very long, you know that the literal translation of that phrase in Hebrew is menstrual cloth. You want to pay your sin debt with promises of righteousness? God says that's like trying to pay an $11 billion debt with your dirty underwear. It's never going to happen. It's what Paul says about the Jews of the first century in Romans 10, 2, and 3. He says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
They are ignorant of the true height of God's holiness. They are ignorant about the true depth of their sin. And so they refuse God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, and they seek to establish their own righteousness via the law. But the law was never given to provide man's righteousness, only to aggravate his debt. And so if you go to the law looking to pay your debt, you're going to find no relief. You're only going to increase your debt because it's an offense to try to pay a debt with dirty underwear. It's something like that scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian strays from the narrow and difficult path of the cross that evangelist has commended to him. And he follows the counsel of Mr. Worldly Wiseman who tells him he can be rid of his burden by going to the house of Mr. Legality who dwells in the town of Morality over by the high hill. And so Christian goes up to the hill, but when he gets close to it, he thinks the top of it is hanging so far over the bottom that he was afraid it was going to fall on his head. And flashes of fire come out of the hill, just like Mount Sinai quaked with smoke and fire as God gave Israel the law. And then Bunyan tells us that the burden of sin that Christian was carrying on his back now felt heavier to him than while he was on his way of the cross. You see, if you seek to pay your sin debt to God by asking for more time, your debt will only grow. Your burden will only be heavier. You'll only store up more wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Romans 2. God doesn't delight in your sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, David says in Psalm 51, 17. We are to seek the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 3, 22. And Paul says in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited unto righteousness. It's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector in the parable of Luke 18, 9 to 14. The Pharisee thanks God for all the ways that he's better than other sinners. But the tax collector, broken over his sin, knows that he doesn't have anything of his own to commend to God so much so that he won't even look to the heavens, but he stands with his face to the ground and beating his breast, pleading, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not be patient with me and I will repay you everything. But Lord, I have no hope of ever paying my debt to you, not a cent of it. I've got nothing of my own to commend to you, least of all the filthy rags of my own righteousness. No, nothing in my hand I bring. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I ask not for more time to satisfy your justice. I could never do it, not in 165,000 years. Lord, I ask for mercy. I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that out of the bounty of your own free grace, that you would cancel the debt of my sin. 
That's what this man in our parable should have prayed. And it's what you must pray in your plea for mercy. That leads us then in the fifth place to the final scene in this parable, and that is the king's compassionate forgiveness. The king's compassionate forgiveness. This slave doesn't even ask for mercy in the proper way. He asks for more time to satisfy justice, and yet, verse 27, the Lord of that slave, this glorious, large-hearted, gracious king, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And oh, that there were words to express the beauty and the glory and the majesty of that verse. It's just unthinkable. The master was owed 10,000 talents, $11 billion, and he simply absorbed the debt. He suffered the loss himself, and he forgave his ruined slave. Why would he do such a thing? The text says it's because the Lord of the slave felt compassion on him. And what a glorious gospel word this Greek term is. It's splonknitsimai. It's my favorite Greek word. Splonknitsimai. The splonkna referred to a man's bowels, his guts. And so splonknitsimai means to be so moved with compassion that the bowels yearn. That there's such a compassion that wells up in the heart of a man that he can feel it in the pit of his stomach. And you know something? This term is used a dozen times in the Gospels, and it only refers to the compassion of God, to the compassion of Christ, or to the compassion of someone who's illustrating God or Christ's disposition in the work of salvation. This is divine compassion. In Matthew 9.36, Jesus has compassion on the crowds because they had no one to teach them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, 14, Jesus wants to be alone in a secluded place, but He has compassion on the crowd and heals their sick. In Matthew 20, 30, Jesus has compassion on the blind men begging the Son of David for their sight. In Mark 1, 41, He has compassion on the unclean leper and says, I am willing, be cleansed. And in Luke 7, 13, he has compassion on the widow of Nain who had lost her only son, and so he raises him from the dead and gives that boy back to his mother. And here, in Matthew 18, we have a picture as clear as day of the unspeakable compassion of the God of heaven who freely and out of un, a pure and unmitigated compassion pities poor sinners who had ruined ourselves in the infinite debt of our own sin, who could hope for nothing but eternity in the debtor's prison of hell. And He forgives us our debt. Matthew Henry commented here and said, the servant's prayer was, have patience with me. The master's grant is a discharge in full. Our inclination the natural legalist that we are, is to tell God to be patient and expect payment. I'll make it up to you. I'll atone for my sins. And if God should consent to such a payment plan, we would be ruined for eternity. Slaves 
in the debtor's prison of hell, laboring every moment under the weeping and gnashing of teeth with no hope of ever repaying the debt. Such is what the law of strict justice requires. And yet God comes to us in the gospel and he says, and here I'm quoting Martin, Martin Luther, he says, not so, my dear friend. It will do no good for you to torture and torment yourself to madness. Your works accomplish nothing, but God's mercy does it all. He has compassion on your affliction and sees you a captive in such anguish, struggling in the mire, and that cannot help yourself out. He sees that you cannot pay the debt, and therefore He forgives you all. And a bit later, Luther says, He might have well proceeded and said, You must pay. He might have well, he just might have, at the very, he's perfectly within his rights, God is, to say, you must pay. I have the right to demand it. I will not annul you on your account my own right. And no one could have blamed him. It would not have been the slightest blight on God's justice for him to demand that every sinner pay for his own sins in eternal conscious torment. It would have only been right. It would have only been just. It would have only been biblical for God to do that. And yet, Luther continues, the king doesn't wish to deal with the slave according to our ideas of right, but changes justice into grace, has mercy on him, and gives him liberty with wife and child and everything he has, and makes him a present of the debt besides. He doesn't just forgive the debt he gives him more than that. He gives us, gives us the blessings of community and fellowship and, the forgive, and, and a clear conscience and the blessings of the ordinances and all the great things that attend the outward means of grace in God's church. And you say, wait a second, I heard you say change justice into grace. How does that work, Martin Luther? God's grace isn't at odds with His justice. And that's right, they're not at odds. God is both just and justifier. But how? Because He discharges the infinite debt of our sin by the infinite propitiatory payment of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not abrogate His justice in forgiving us. He doesn't just sweep our sin debt under the rug. He doesn't just take the bills and say, oh, well, kids are going to be kids and rip him up. No. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. You see, God demands full payment for sin, for every sin ever committed in history. But in the case of those of us who are beneficiaries of His compassionate forgiveness, He demands our full payment from our substitute. And the Father finds in Christ a substitute who is willing. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Matthew 20, 28, don't miss it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is why He came. He is the one who says, as John Flavel has so memorably put it, picturing a conversation between the Father and the Son before time began as they chart out the plan of salvation, looking ahead to man's sin. 
The, fa- the son says to the father, Oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou, shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. Dear people, let your heart sing in worship of such a willing substitute. But not only is your substitute willing, he's able to undertake to pay your sin debt. 10,000 talents, $11.5 billion, eternity, infinite wrath and punishment for ages and ages without end. For not just one sinner, but for every sinner who comes to Him in repentance and faith. Oh, what a debt Jesus has paid for His people. How glorious must He be How worthy must He be? How precious His blood must be? How infinite His righteousness must be to pay an infinite debt for innumerable sinners? What a Savior is our Savior. This is the Savior that we've celebrated at Christmas time. This is the Savior that we cling to as we turn to look ahead to a new year. This gospel of compassionate forgiveness is the banner of our life. A little bit later on in Pilgrim's Progress, Faithful, Christian's fellow journeyer, is telling Christian about his journey and he speaks about how a man had been running after him. And when he caught up to him, the man knocked him to the ground as if he were dead, it says. And when he came to, he asked the man why, and he knocked him out a second time, again, as if he were dead. And he said, so when I came to myself again, I cried him mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked him back down again. And Christian tells faithful, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spares none nor does he know how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. And Faithful says, He would have doubtless made an end of me, except one came by and bid him forbear. Someone came and made Moses stop beating Faithful. And Christian asks who that was, and Faithful says, I didn't know him at first. But as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord. You see, the law doesn't know how to show mercy. The law beats us mercilessly, but justly, for even our inward inclinations to sin. And given the magnitude of the debt that we owe, if we sought relief from the law, it would surely beat us into the death of eternal punishment. 
But there is one who comes and makes the law forbear. Not by overturning justice, but by suffering in himself the demands that justice makes upon us. By absorbing the full weight of our debt. And so rightly do we sing rich wounds, yet visible above in his hand and in his side. Rich wounds to pay an infinite debt. And the point that Jesus is making, friends, is that if we are to learn this principle of 70 times 7 forgiveness, of lavish, extravagant, unending forgiveness... We need to dwell much upon the lavish, extravagant, infinite forgiveness that we have been granted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means we need to dwell much on the infinite debt that we owe and let our hearts be melted by the compassionate forgiveness of God our King through Christ our substitute. Think of what you were when the Lord saved you. Think of how foolishly you lived. Think of how fruitless and futile and worthless was the path that you were walking. How you would totally waste your life if he left you to yourself. Think of what boundless debt you had amassed by your life of sin. How exquisitely you deserved his punishment. And then think of how freely you were forgiven. How extravagant was the forgiveness that was lavished upon you. Flavel writes again, he says, Reader, let me beg you, if you be one of this pardoned number, to look over the canceled bonds and see what vast sums are remitted to you. Remember what you were in your natural estate. What, and yet pardoned? Full and finally pardoned, and that freely, as to any hand that you had in the procurement of it. He says, what can you do but fall down at the feet of free grace and kiss those feet that move so freely towards so vile a sinner? We ought to kiss the feet of free grace. And the point that Jesus will make in the rest of the parable is can it be that you kiss the feet of free grace and yet refuse to exercise free grace in your forgiveness of fellow slaves? Can you imagine someone receiving such scandalous forgiveness to be forgiven such an incalculable debt and then refusing to forgive a brother or sister in Christ of what can only be an infinitely lesser offense than one's own against God. It should be unthinkable. And sadly, it's not unthinkable. Even among us, it's not only thinkable. For some of you, it's your practice. For some of you, it's your character. For some of you, it's your way of life. For some of you, you're trying right now, the whole hour, trying to stuff the thought of uh, the face of a person that you need to go and be reconciled to out of your mind and, and ignore and dart out of the way of the pangs of conscience that the Word of God would inflict upon you for your good. We cannot be a people who doesn't know how to 
apply the gospel to one another, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in our dealings with one another. We should read this parable, at least the first half of it, understand the unfathomable grace and compassion that we have been shown and be the most difficult people in the world to offend. I've been forgiven of all of this. Will I forgive you? Of course I'll forgive you. I delight to extend forgiveness in the way that I've been shown. Will I forgive you? That's, that's my line. That's, the, that's what I was asking for from God this morning. And you know, I got it freely and immediately and up, upon no conditions other than my sincere asking for it. Because of Christ. Because of the sufficiency of His sacrifice and of His righteousness. Because of the undeniability of His resurrection. He lives and so I live also. We can't go on into 2023 nursing bitterness, holding grudges, letting there be distance and ice in the relationship between the people of God in this place. We need to learn the lesson of this parable. We need to understand the first half, first of all, in knowing ourselves so greatly sinners and so mercifully and lavishly forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in each heart, that you would make effectual by the power of your Spirit the preaching of your Word, and that you would sanctify people today, that you would grant repentance in a course of unforgiveness or bitterness. I pray that you would bring people to mind, if you hadn't already, that that you would even now bring to each one's mind anyone in their life with whom there needs to be a conversation, a seeking of forgiveness, a requesting of forgiveness for a sin that has been committed. Lord, I pray where the sins have been minor and not repeated that you would give grace that we might overlook them without a word necessary, for it is to a man's glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 19. But in the cases where we discern it would be beneficial for our brother and detrimental not to go to him, that we would go and we would seek reconciliation, that there would be no phoniness at Grace Church, that we would see one another and and not think of a way to walk in the opposite direction or pretend we didn't see one another, but to run toward one another with open arms, even as you, Father, have with open arms embraced us, though our debt against you was unfathomable. What can we say but to fall down at the feet of free grace and kiss those feet that move so freely towards so vile a sinner? We feel the weight of our unworthiness, and yet we feel the blessing of your grace. I pray that you would give us the strength to bend that grace out to others. And where, the, where there are those who have not experienced such divine forgiveness, for whom forgiving others is so foreign because they themselves have never experienced it from you, Lord, I pray that you would forgive even this moment by granting repentance and faith in Christ, by giving the gift of the new birth, by showing yourself glorious to the eyes of the heart, and that you would bring, Lord Jesus, more of your sheep into your fold. Help us to live commensurate with our privileges. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that you might receive what you're worthy of from us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.